Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Welcome, Hazard Girls listeners. Today, we're continuing our discussion about D&I, diversity and inclusion. Last week, we spoke with Rebecca Francis, D&I specialist with IEA, Infrastructure and Energy Alternatives. And today, we have another D&I professional joining us, this time from Schindler Elevator Corporation. Julia Hodum is the Director of Inclusion and Diversity for Schindler, the North American arm for the Switzerland-based Schindler Group, a leading global mobility provider of escalators, elevators, and related services. In addition to her role at Schindler, Julia also serves on the Diversity Committee of the industry organization NEII, which is the National Elevator Industry, Inc., and she is a member of NAWIC, the National Association of Women in Construction, which is how I met her at the National Conference a few weeks ago. Julia holds an MBA from the Georgia Institute of Technology, as well as a BA in International Studies from the American University. She is the recipient of the 2017 Young Leader in Diversity Award by the National Diversity Council. Congrats on that, Julia, and welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, Julia, I see you started out in International Studies, and then you went on to get your MBA. When did you start becoming interested in diversity issues? I think my whole life, I would say I remember being probably in elementary school and being acutely aware of who was sitting alone at the lunch table or who in my neighborhood or on the playground seemed a little different from me and and how could I be their friend. So it was always something that really intrigued me. And I was always aware that I was one of many and that all of us are different and that that's something that is a wonderful thing that we have. So initially, I took that interest and that passion and started learning about different cultures, different languages, and that took me into my international studies degree, and I was also able to spend some time abroad, and then I started thinking that maybe political science was the way to go because I could influence policy and really support these communities of these wonderful people that I was getting to know that had different experiences than I did, so I moved into political science. And I interned at the White House under the Obama administration. And through that experience, which was incredible and eye-opening, I quickly realized that policy was not for me and that I needed to go back to really the, the people side of things. So even as I started my career in a kind of a different track, I was always looking for, you know, across my company or my workforce or my teams, how could I support the inclusion of others? And how can I learn about the different stories of everyone around me? Interesting. So when you were growing up and you were noticing differences and you were trying to make sure that everyone felt included, did you feel like people were supporting you or did you encounter resistance like with the school? Was the school on your side with that kind of thing? No, it was really hard at first. I think people didn't understand why I cared or was taking upon myself to kind of step outside of the norms. When I was in high school, it was a few years after 9-11 and my neighborhood in Ohio where I grew up became the safe harbor for Muslim immigrants from different countries. But this was a really new experience for my community, which was very blue collar, very homogenous, not so sure of what to expect. And especially with the news and the media and things you had seen about 
our Muslim community members, it wasn't always good things. So there was real resistance to even letting new families into the community. And I quickly took the streets to, to knock on people's doors and, and get to know whether it was the immigrant communities and learn about their religion and attend services with them and ask questions, or it was other neighbors who had been there or their families had been there for generations. They didn't really understand or like that our neighborhood was changing and just learn about their perspective too. So definitely a lot of people thought I was crazy and didn't understand why I cared or why I started learning other languages to get to know these immigrant communities and try to integrate a little more with them as well. So I was always a bit of an outsider in that sense because I wasn't following this normal path. But I think that once I was able to show the value of connecting and expanding my own experience and my own network, it really opened up doors for me. And I think that my friends started to see that, my teachers, my neighbors, and then they began to be more interested as well. And then I was able to connect them to other community members to start to tell stories and advocate for one another on a larger scale. Wait a minute. This is so interesting. So you just decided to go around knocking on doors and talking to people. Did you do this independently or did, were you part of an organization? No, I just thought I was a freshman in high school and I thought, wow, this is so cool. I really want to just know everybody in my neighborhood and, and everyone's different than me. And so I don't know anything about what's going on. I have to ask questions. I have to get out there. So that became a really big part of my high school experience. Um, ultimately, I ended up leaving my junior year to study abroad and I received a scholarship to study in Argentina. And then I was the outsider uh, moving into a new culture and, and learning that language and all of the societal norms. So I was able to be on both sides of it. But no, it was just something that I did you know, after school, or after my part-time job, I would just go around and tutor or just, like I said, kind of just be there to support the families. I would spend a lot of time just in different people's homes to answer the phone if a telemarketer called and they couldn't speak English and I could translate or, or things like that. Just little things, helping them enroll in school or technical programs so that the community or that these members could feel a little bit more integrated into the community and have more opportunities. Wow. Just kind of being around and, and figuring out how I could support. Yeah, just learning and meeting people and listening, I think is a big part of it, it sounds like. Absolutely. And I think so much of building relationships is just listening. It's just saying, hey, I'm just here because I care and you're valued and you're welcome to be here as part of our community. And I don't think that we tell each other that enough. Yeah, that's so true. And I'm just curious, how many languages do you speak? Not that many. I would say now fluently, I speak English and Spanish and Spanish is my second language, but it's my children's first language. So I get a lot of practice now with that. And then I also, while I was in high school, I learned Russian, which I'm not still great at. And then I also learned Swahili while I was living in Kenya. Oh, when were you living in Kenya? So then when I went to college, when I switched from political science, more into international studies, I spent a year in Kenya I was researching economic development, studying there, and I was also working there in one of the informal settlements. And then what made you decide to get your MBA? That was during your college years that you went to Kenya. So what just what made you decide to go pursue the MBA? I felt like when I was in my undergrad, I was very much focused on what classes will interest me and excite me and inspire me. And that was cross-cultural communications and poverty and culture, gender studies, racism, ethnicity topics, like all these things and all these conversations really drew me to them. And that's how I kind of built out that major on international relations. But when I got into the real world in the workforce, I wasn't finding that I could really apply those conversations and topics in a business sense. Like I didn't understand how I could influence the organization strategically, 
even though those things still really interested me, like how could I bring them to the company and to leaders to show that there was business value behind that? So I felt like I really needed to build up my foundations in economics and statistics and finance and just learn about how a company operates and how a business can be more strategic in all of its different functions so that I could then come to leaders and say, you know, inclusion diversity is a business strategy and serve in more of a consultant role versus it just being you know, pitched as these are really interesting people, interesting topics. It's kind of a warm, fuzzy thing to share. But no, this is actually a strategy that contributes to your bottom line. So I wanted to have a little bit more credibility and background in that space to be able to transition this into something that I could practice full time. OK, so what your position is that you're a D&I director, right? Yes. Okay. So, okay. So when did D&I start becoming, I guess, almost mandatory for companies? Because when you first started out in the field, was it even as widespread as it is now? No, it was pretty non-existent. Or you had some companies that, you know, might have someone in a role or or have, have some work being done, but it was more a tick the box or a project management level. And I have met a range of professionals within the DEI space that have been doing this for decades and are incredible and are real pioneers in the space. But I would not say that it was widespread until the last year or two. I got involved in this in more of a voluntary aspect of when I first launched my career. So from day one, I was asking questions to my managers and my leaders about what types of organizations or networks are available for employees to get involved in, for us to connect to each other and to make sure that leaders are aware of the different experiences that their employees are having. And the answer was that there really wasn't anything available. We were, I would say, you know, 10 years ago, you start to see companies develop employee resource groups. And even today, you know, that model continues to change. Some have business resource groups, which are similar, but not quite the same thing. So I started out in this in a corporate setting by launching employee resource groups and mentoring programs for women when I was at Accenture. So I was based at a a project site, like a client site. So for our staff that was there, that was permanently based there at the client site, I launched these programs. And then when I moved to my next role at another company, I continued to build on that. And then I launched a series of employee resource groups there and kept building and building until I became kind of known throughout the company as DEI girl was really interested in these things and would always say yes and, and contribute to projects. But in the meantime, I was still doing my day job, which was a, a very different field of work. Okay, I get it. So you actually kind of built this position around yourself just based on your own passion and your own, just how much you care about it. I think that that's what you've had to do to get into this space and to prove it to your companies and your leaders, this is something valuable. You really need individuals raising their hands to say, you know, I I see this as a priority and I'm willing to step up and contribute and put in the time because otherwise it just hasn't been on the radar over time. I mean, like I said, I think the last couple of years, definitely the last five years, sure. But apart from that, it's really seen as this kind of new thing. And I think we need to get over the myth or the assumption that this is kind of a trendy topic. It's really just a forward thinking, kind of futuristic way to push forward business strategy because it's not just a warm, fuzzy, you know, there's so much research behind it and it shows how we can impact leadership styles and experiences of employees and the bottom line all at the same time. So we just need more people to kind of share that out and infiltrate their own organizations to make sure that this becomes something that's seen as valuable and also sustainable within each organization. So when you came on board at Schindler, 
were you tasked with starting the whole DEI program from scratch or did it already exist? Yes, I launched it for our U.S. operations. I have had a lot of support because we are a subsidiary of a Swiss-based organization that has had an IND's inclusion diversity head in place. And so I was able to take the framework that had been built out at a global level and then apply it to the U.S. with our lens, knowing that we have very different populations here, very different experiences. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that we're tailoring that strategy to things that are really tangible, really meaningful, and high impact across our U.S. operations. So I've been building that out since I joined in October of 2020. So is this something that has existed in Europe for a while or is it also relatively new over there? No, I would argue that it's actually more common here and that we are now spreading it to Europe and other places. I think that the U.S. has always been a little bit more forward thinking in the diversity space, especially from a policy perspective. So if you look at accessible sidewalks and and ADA compliance. A lot of that has originated in the U.S. So I think that we continued as a society to really push the boundaries and and show best practices, but it is slow to catch on. It really depends on your leadership teams and where their priorities are. So I am happy to say with Schindler, even being a European company where it's not very common among their peers, they have prioritized this prior to when we saw the uptick in the focus in the U.S. So interesting. So it's good that you had some kind of framework, I guess, to base it on, but what were the steps you had to take as you started this program here in the U.S.? I think it really depends on any kind of company or culture you go into. I had also launched the DNI practice for my previous company a few years prior, and it had a different setup. And so I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all approach to launching a DEI strategy. I do think that every company can be successful in doing it. But what worked for me, I would say, and which has been different this time around than the previous, because it really is about coming in with a lens of, you know, you are a consultant coming in to analyze and diagnose a problem and provide recommendations and solutions to the problem. But you are not the only person that can come in and save the day, right? You're there to contribute to the team. And I think keeping myself in check and remembering that, you know, I am one person who can support a larger business strategy, but I'm not here to come in and save the day or tell anyone what to do. I'm here to open up conversations, to connect the dots between leaders and employees and everything in between. So the first thing I did at Schindler and what I've done in previous places is come in completely open to new ideas and perspectives. So I knew that I'd be coming into a new industry and that I knew nothing about construction. I knew nothing about elevators. And that was something that really interested me. And it gave me a great opportunity to come in and say, I am starting from scratch. So tell me everything. And I spent a lot of time just assessing and understanding the environment. I had done this previously in a former company where I had been an employee for a number of years. And so I knew the company culture, but in either case, you still need to dive into data, which is not always readily accessible. So really digging into which metrics are going to be valuable to understand current state and to predict and support change in the future. Lots and lots of data analysis and ongoing data analysis, talking with everyone in the company. So that means I'm always scheduling meetings with new new employees I meet in the field, technicians, all the way up to our president and our most senior level executives, as well as counterparts in Europe and elsewhere. So talking to people from all levels, all office locations, 
all different educational backgrounds, nationalities, just to understand what their experience has been like so I can start to connect the dots across what could be improved or, or kind of where we are today because there are a lot of wonderful things that each company is doing that you can then build on. So for Schindler, for example, it's a very family-oriented company. And as an industry, I think it's very family-oriented as well. And a lot of that comes from its roots in the union. So that's such a beautiful thing that we should keep building on. And we shouldn't apologize for that or, or feel bad that we've had a homogenous population because it's come from you know, this kind of family focus. That's mm-hmm. a really beautiful thing. Now we can just start to expand our network and our doors so that everyone can be part of the family. And that's the goal. So kind of bring people along. So, so after assessing kind of where you are, what's important to your company, what are the main values? Before we move on to that, I'm just really curious about something you were talking about, like with the metrics, because I know you're talking about qualitative research, like you were talking to people, right? You were asking questions and you were listening, but then you were also talking about quantitative research with all these metrics that you had to analyze. Was this something that you just accessed and was this part of your job to analyze the numbers or was this done in-house? Was it outsourced? How did you go about doing that? Actually, we're doing it in-house and we do have some partners who support us on a global scale and, and some ongoing metrics. So for example, ensuring that we have pay parity across all groups, those are things that we've already built into our organization as expectations across the board. So I have access to that data. Other things that I've been looking at and in partnership with other departments are things like different demographics across different business functions, everything from tenure and performance review onboarding experience, candidate pools, all of those different things as touch points. But you can have lagging and leading indicators and you have to have a right mix because it's very easy to just look at what is our percentage of women in leadership or people of color or whatever you want to focus on. And there are so many different ways you can define diversity, right? Because every single person is diverse. What's important is to not get caught up too much in what is the percentage of representation, because that is the ultimate goal. You want representation, but at the same time, you can't get there if it's not organic through different inclusive measures. So I think you can lose sight by saying we want to get to X percentage of representation because you have to put in all the different levers in place to make sure that the experience is inclusive, that employees are satisfied, that leaders are offering opportunities to all of their employees, regardless of background. And those are the, the more important things that can be harder to analyze, but you can assign metrics to them. Okay, that's interesting. And then you talked a little bit earlier when we were discussing this before the show about industry and community partnerships. And I'm interested to hear how that works as far as doing, you know, achieving diversity within the company. I think that our community partners can be really helpful in guiding what our workforce should look like as far as, you know, we want to match our customers. We want to make sure that we are reflecting their values, their experiences, and that we're serving their needs. So that's a big piece of it. And we can't do it in a silo or in a vacuum where we're disconnected from our communities. So that's a really important factor. But I think that community partners can also provide us really invaluable insight into our reputation and how how do they see that we can improve or what are things that are working really well that excite them about what we're doing? How do we make sure that we're headed in the right direction? Something that I found really valuable at the NAWIC conference was that just by being present and being available, I was able to meet so many partners in our industry and others that I probably wouldn't have connected with one-on-one. 
mm-hmm. but we're familiar with our products, but had, we never really talked about these types of things. You know, we have sales meetings as organizations or, you know, product pitches and, and conversations and client follow-ups, but we never spend time to talk about, you know, so what has been your experience and how did it feel if you were the only woman in the room during the sales call or, the, or during, you know, the, the inspection? Let's talk about those types of things. And so by being able to build up stronger community partnerships with those that aren't necessarily largely represented in our industry, I think is extremely valuable because otherwise we just keep reinforcing our blind spots. Mm. You mentioned earlier the idea of building executive accountability as part of one of the initial steps you had to take. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I definitely don't think that any kind of DEI work can be successful if it's solely on the head of one person or team of people to make change and make embedded sustainable change. So the majority of my job is really to influence and to support leaders as a business consultant so that they understand how they can individually create change and be accountable and how it can have valuable return for them from a bottom line, but also as a leader as far as their relationships with employees and their communication styles and such. And so a lot of what I do in my conversations is talk about, based on their business function, what are ways that inclusion and diversity can improve their day-to-day and help them reach their goals more efficiently or at a faster pace or create that competitive advantage through this people lens. And that's a pretty easy sell because there's a lot of well-documented research across every business function of why diversity and inclusion can improve their goals and it can help them reach their goals faster. So that's pretty easy of a sell. The main thing is being able to show how leaders can take accountability, get credit for these things, and be really hands-on involved without it taking a lot of time or energy or money away from them. Mm-hmm. A lot of the initiatives I do that have the biggest impact are around changing the way people are thinking or behaving that don't have a lot of a financial cost associated with them. It's having open conversations and setting up a coffee chat where a leader will spend 30 minutes meeting with one of our employee inclusion networks to talk about race and culture or religion or whatever the topic might be. That's not a heavy lift for them, but the leaders get a lot of benefit out of it, both on a personal level and then being able to also make business decisions based on the input they're getting. So just going through one of those experiences, just getting 30 minutes of their time and then maybe another hour to talk with me in a very informal way about why this is important, how I can support them. It's pretty easy to get them to see why, yes, they should sign on and it's going to be win-win for everyone. I think sometimes it can be approached as, you know, I need something from you or I'm tracking a leader to make sure that they're making progress or accusing them of whatever it might be of why we're not seeing representation a certain way. But we really have to have a partnership and we have to be supporting each other to make sure that this is something that just becomes a norm in the business. It's interesting that this has been your experience and I'm happy that it has been. And I spoke to Rebecca Francis, who's a DEI expert at a different company. And because we're doing this little mini series, I guess, on DEI, which is awesome. And I love getting deep into the topic. But she was saying that for her, when she speaks with construction industry companies and I guess partners, Sometimes she does encounter some resistance because they're saying, well, we're doing really well. We've never really had a problem so with our bottom line. So why should we change anything? So I'm wondering from you, what are the major barriers right now that you are encountering about being able to achieve diverse representation in the construction industry? 
I think that's a great point. And I would say, you know, every leader and every employee, every individual is on a slightly different path or has different experiences that has either opened them up to these ideas or made them a little more reserved or defensive or concerned about it. And so I think universally, you know, there's there's no one state to be at and it's always ebbing and flowing as far as you know, making sure that for any change management project you do, and, and IND is certainly change management, you're always going to have people all the way across, you know, whether super bought into it or need a little more time or somewhere in between. What I see as right now a barrier to moving the needle quickly is that we have a really wonderful workforce that, like I said, traditionally has come you know, through the unions or through the pipelines, maybe multiple generations within this industry. And so it's kind of a niche operation. So the word just hasn't gotten out. So mm-hmm. over time, and, and because it's been such a really fulfilling career path for so many that are in the industry, we've never really had to recruit. So you've naturally had over time, either, you know, people through word of mouth or family members or friends or neighbors, they're the ones that learn about opportunities and they apply or, you know, they they come in through the union. It's not like we have been proactively as an industry, I would say as a whole, we haven't been proactively going out and trying to recruit and reach anyone because we've been able to fulfill our talent needs just based on natural inquiries. Right. And so that's starting to change because the talent that we see, so the availability, you know, across trades, but also corporate roles, we're going to lose out on that talent because there are other companies that are aggressively hiring. So we want to make sure that we have the best, the best. And while we might have been able to be successful, traditionally, we're having to change the way we operate just you know, because of COVID, because of the cities growing and you know, populations exploding in different places and urbanization and globalization, all these other things that are at a you know, rampant speed that we haven't encountered before in previous generations. So we are having to adapt. And I think that for an industry that's always been successful by being able to continue in previous ways, there can be some pain points there by changing and trying to say, you know, all of a sudden we're having to now search for people, for anyone to be able to fulfill these new roles and opportunities that are opening themselves up because our industry is expanding and we are having more opportunities as an elevator company as we see more cities develop, especially in developing countries. The other thing around, I think, why there's been perhaps a barrier to inclusion or inclusive workforce, which is ensuring that the diverse populations that we have within, so let's say women on a job site, for example, maybe a barrier to true inclusion is that when you have such small numbers, it can be really hard to speak up or create ways and feel like you're not stepping out of line because you just want to be accepted as part of the group. So it's harder to build that psychological safety over time, which then prevents new people from wanting to come in and kind of test the waters or try something out that feels a little risky. So as we're able to build our numbers and show more diversity, especially across our field roles, that's when we can start to say, hey, it's actually really great that you might have a different opinion or that you have new ideas or a new way of approaching these things. And that can be appreciated because you're not being seen as the only woman who also has a different idea. You're being seen as one of the team members who has this great idea that's now welcomed. So I think those are a few things that we have to keep an eye on across construction because they're not things that will change overnight if we don't really put effort into them. So it's really part of changing the whole culture is what you're saying. It's not just individuals or policies. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think that diversity of thought, diversity of experience, that's where you start to see business impact. But to get there, you have to have an inclusive environment, which is all about work culture. It's all about what leadership is demonstrating through their words and actions. It's about the everyday experience of employees across all levels of the organization. And then the communication and the narrative that they share with each other and with our communities about what our company is all about. So all of that needs to change at the right pace at the same time to get us to our goals. Julie, what are some ways that people can be allies and advocate for more diversity and inclusion in the workplace? I think the first thing is recognizing that we are all diverse. We all have different experiences. We all have unique points of view. So when you talk about diversity initiatives or diversity inclusion initiatives, there is a place for everyone to participate and provide thought and direction and ideas into them. So something that we do at Schindler is instead of employee resource groups per se, which are a bit more of closed networks, we have employee inclusion networks. So that is where all employees are invited to participate, to have dialogue, share ideas, and get to know one another based on different diversity themes. So for example, we have a gender inclusion network with employees of all genders. It's not just a women's resource group, for example. So that's a way that anyone who identifies perhaps more as an ally or as part of the majority group can get involved. It's just by being present and listening to the conversations that are being held there, but then also taking part in different events that are going on, helping plan them, help communicate them to show that you're taking an active role because a passive role in diversity inclusion means that you are not contributing to the solution. You're just adding to the problem. So a big part of it is just showing up, being present and being open to listening rather than trying to advise right away, you know, but you're not there to provide a solution. You're just there to provide support and to learn. And that's a big piece of it too, is let's just learn from each other and our experiences. By participating and supporting those groups, then it becomes a larger scale about how you can support psychological safety and the experience of other individuals across the organization. And that's by active listening. And if someone seems like they're being talked to over in a meeting or they're not you know, being heard on a job site, then speaking up and supporting them. That's a huge way of just you know, being a buddy, showing respect. It doesn't have to come down to, you know, am I being an ally? It's just, am I being a good friend? Am I being a good coworker to someone? And then also a really tangible way that people can support diversity in the workforce is by sharing their network out, sharing opportunities through employee referrals, a more word of mouth, whatever it might be, you can always use your own network. Don't just rely on your company recruiters or the hiring manager to find the diversity out there because we all have our own networks. And the more we connect those networks together, the larger of our impact we're going to have. So I think actually taking steps to say, I'm going to participate in these things. I'm going to show up just to listen and just to learn and to be open and not defensive about that. And I'm going to start leveraging my network and taking it upon myself to solve a problem and to contribute to the solution. Those are huge things everyone can take. I can imagine that just having the employee inclusion networks that you have going on, especially including just not having it just be women, but including all genders would increase the psychological safety because people can look around and see that there are other people there supporting them as allies. And maybe that gives them more of a comfort level. But how do you talk to people about having uncomfortable conversations? Like what about the people that don't show up to the meetings? And what about the people that don't seem so amenable? How how do you have uncomfortable conversations? How do you tell employees to do that? 
So that's one of the initiatives that I like to start from top down. I like to equip leaders with the skills and the understanding to be able to start facilitating these with their leadership teams and then continue kind of you know, implement it on a smaller scale down to individual teams because we have a lot of these peer-to-peer conversations that are voluntary basis. So you're right, people can opt out of them. People can join and then just listen and not necessarily have the dialogue. It's the level of cumber that they have, you know, based on that point in time. But in parallel, we also run initiatives where our leaders are connecting with the employee inclusion networks. And this is mandatory. So all the leaders are showing up regardless. And they are supportive of the initiative, but it might be uncomfortable for them. And maybe not all of them would raise their hands if they weren't getting a little nudge to do so, right? So that is something. But the way I frame these, and I think a lot of it is in the setup, is around you know starting with identity-first conversations. Like, who am I as a person? Let's talk about how we are similar and how we're connected and how we're different and how we're unique. And then how does that impact our experience in the workplace? So building on us as people and our connection and our empathy to each other as people first, so that now any topic that comes up, sure, we can handle it because we already have a sense of camaraderie and respect, mutual respect for each other. I think you can go the opposite direction and just have these conversations where it's like, well, let's talk about X, Y, Z or the problems here. And it becomes defensive really quickly because you're kind of forced to take a side really early on. So instead, these conversations are a lot more about who are you as a person and being fully present and available to just take in that person's story and then share also what your experience has been and then together tackle these different inclusion topics or challenges together versus it becoming an us versus them conversation. And by having it start at the leaders and the work way down, we make sure that employees are seeing that their leaders are invested and that they are holding themselves accountable to conduct these conversations at a team level, especially if there are big things happening in the news or on a job site or anything in between. So making sure that employees are seeing that their leaders are people that they can trust to have these conversations in a very respectful, mature way and not try to be there just to solve or point fingers or defend anyone, but just there to open up a conversation and hopefully a new connection. That's amazing. And just your whole entire story that you've shared with us, I mean, from the very beginning, you were in in high school knocking on people's doors to talk about these issues. And now here you are today with, you know, these global corporations doing the same thing, but actually expanding it even further. And it's super inspiring. I would love to know where our listeners can find you just to connect and maybe follow your journey. Yes. Well, I'm on LinkedIn and I I do post a lot. So I love the interaction. I love when people tag me on different research or case studies or other things that are going on day to day with employee experience. So Julia Hodam on LinkedIn, and then you can follow Schindler Elevator Corporation across all social media platforms. Julia Hodam, I'm so glad we met at the NAMIC annual conference. You have so much great information to share and you're quite the inspiration yourself. So congrats on your career and thank you for all of your great work. Thank you so much, Emily. I really enjoyed our conversation. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.